Tell me. Okay, let's record it. Tell me, uh, tell me though, let's just get levels. Tell me uh, what you had for lunch today. Did you have lunch? It was, uh, yes, I had peanut butter and raisin sandwich, my traditional lunch. That is noble. <laughs> yeah, I know, isn't it, though? <laughs> well, I don't have it every day, but when I, when I am in a hurry, and you know, I was in, eating it in the car, mm-hmm. so it was convenient. Uh, and not a lot of people like that particular <laughs> sandwich. But, uh, I bet it sounds very good for you. It, c- it comes from my non-sugar days, okay. <laughs> uh, which, which have passed, right. but uh, there's still some echoes of that mm-hmm. uh, okay. in my life. So. I think we're, I think we're ready. All right. Let's, okay. So, you know, um, I, you don't, if you've heard, you've been listening to some of the programs and, uh, Mm -hmm. you don't, this part is often not in the edited interview, but I always start the interview, whoever I'm talking about, whatever we're talking about, whether it's quantum physics or, (laughs) or uh, recovery, I always start by just asking about, um, Something just hearing a little bit about the religious and spiritual background of your life, your childhood, uh, and you know uh-huh. it, it's peppered throughout your book. I, I thought yeah. actually the the when I really started getting at it was this sentence that was it's a couple hundred pages in where you said, "I went from being an altar boy in fifth grade to an atheist <laughs> dropout in tenth grade." It seems that both of these guys continue to live in me. But yeah. Just tell me a little bit about that. Well, I was raised Catholic. Um, I was very devout as a kid, um, an altar boy, and, you know, I do feel that something was aroused in me, some sense of devotion and connectedness uh, to the sacred, uh, being in at Mass and being in the great church. Um, and when I awoke intellectually, um, you know, started to come of age, and and I had an older brother who was uh, a few, three years ahead of me, who was kind of brilliant and, and, you know, my mentor in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, I just very quickly (laughs) lost all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it was was also tied in with what was going on in my life and in our culture. Um, You know, I... It was the Beatles and rock and roll and drugs and alcohol and and for me, depression as well. Um, I started seeing therapist when I was 14. Right. You You went through a depression when you were a teenager, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Very periodic, uh, which which I still deal with. I mean, once once that starts, (laughs) it's kind of hard to stop. It's part of your... Uh, Yeah. So... um, yeah, it was it was kind of quick, but a lot of things were happening fast then. You mm-hmm. know, I was born in 1950, hmm. and uh, I was telling my daughter yesterday that in 1960 she's about to turn 10, and I said when I turned 10, it was the year that John Kennedy was uh, elected, and right. I actually saw him speak, and and then the, the, what she said to me next was, and when was he assassinated? Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, when I was 13, so. You know, my God, what happened to you know our world really? As really you were really a becoming lot. aware of the world. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and so it was all that kind of go- idealism going to cynicism pretty quickly. Yeah, and you did um, experience addiction in many forms. I think what I read is from the ages of sixteen to thirty-five, um, alcohol and different kinds of drug use and. 
waitresses' <laughs> sexuality. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think what's kind of interesting about your story, or it's it's this kind of story that I don't think um, gets told so often, is you, you you write about all of that and you say, and, and all the while I was thinking I was a spiritual person. I mean, maybe not for all of those years, but for many mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. That's a really important part of my story, and it's something that is important for me particularly because, um, well, first of all, I know a lot of other people who have gone through that, and it's so it's, as you say, it's not sort of the typical story that you hear, but since I've been telling my story, I hear that Hmm. back from others. And And because I think that addiction does have a spiritual, is connected to the spiritual path as, um, you know, we've heard from Jung, his comments about it. Um, Christina Groff has a book called The Thirst for Wholeness that's right. about spiritual... There's that connection th- th- between that, that linguistic connection between the word spirit, spiritus, and the word we use for alcohol, spirits, as well. That's kind of hard. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And so that um, is... It, it, well, so so I see that in some ways my... Spiritual search was another um, search for a fix, um, for another drug, and and I've seen people use it that way. Not just me. It's it's you know people who aren't you know don't relate as alcoholics or addicts who get very caught up in having particular kinds of experiences. Um, There's warnings about that in the traditional Buddhist teachings about not becoming attached to the higher states of concentration. Mm -hmm. So there's that whole kind of sort of tie-in. But um, what I realized after I got sober was that I was overlooking the fundamental morality, you know, foundation of of, uh, any kind of spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And that came partly out of my own uh, willful ignorance and partly because the way Buddhism was being presented in our culture in the 70s was they were not emphasizing that aspect of it. Many of the people who got into Buddhism early on were, got there through LSD. Right, right. And putting your story in the context of those times, is there's also this line that you talk about walking, even music like Strawberry Fields or Jimi Hendrix, those Mm -hmm. almost kinds of transcendent spiritual experiences that were connected with drugs and kind of exalted and, and not... And very powerful, right? I mean, ten, uh, well, yeah. I mean, Strawberry Fields, nothing is real. I mean, this, that's a very powerful spiritual statement, and it's in the context of music that's kind of trying to induce that hallucinogenic state. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of confusion about it. There, there still is. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago called Zigzag Zen, that was about uh, the connection between drugs and uh, Buddhism. Yeah. And uh, you know, I was kind of like. You know, like okay, that's that's not my. <laughs> I'm not really supporting this book. You know, it was yeah. it was kind of concerned me that people still think like that. But then again, I know some people can take LSD, and it's a spiritual experience. Hmm. For me, LSD was just another drug to get high on. So, I I, I don't want to overly generalize my experience and say anybody who you know takes hallucinogens is is a drug addict because it's it's not true. You know? Yeah. 
And I mean, that's why... No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and you, one of the things you talk about is you smoked um, pot marijuana for years. Mm-hmm. Um, no, you know, and you could confidently say that it's not uh, addictive, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. A delusion, yeah. Uh-huh. Amazing. Um, yeah, and so tell me, talk to me about, tell me a little bit of the story about your turning point. I know that it's not one moment, it's a long passage of life, but what happened to start to move you? What happened to really finally move you towards recovery, towards sobriety? Well, the, you know, when I reflect back on this now, one of the things that I say to people is that there's, there's a, a way in which in, the, in 12-step programs, people demonize the pre-recovery person, say, you know, I was bad then, and then, you know, magically I got sober, and now I'm good. And that's a denial of the law of karma, which hmm. says that, you know, things only happen as the result of, of actions and intentions. So, so that's helped me to look at my process toward recovery in a more positive way, as not just about hitting a bottom. And, the, and to see that, you know, my spiritual search, although there was an addictive quality to it, also there was a sincere quality to it. So I was trying to find my way out of suffering, basically. Um, I identified that suffering mostly around depression, but it, it was certainly really more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, I basically, I felt like I tried everything. And nothing worked. Uh, you know, going so far as to go on a three-month silent retreat, you know, that, if that doesn't fix you, what will, kind of. Hmm. A- and so that I then lost myself by turning myself over to this kind of homeless guru. And, um, and that's when I really kind of bottomed out, which was three years before I got sober. And, and I started to kind of rebuild my life. And, you know... It's, it, it is mysterious in a way. I met somebody who was sober, a musician, and I was playing with him, and that gave me a vision of sobriety where I thought, oh, okay, he's kind of cool, you know, because mm-hmm. you think that anybody who's in the 12-step program is just either a loser or, you know, some... That's what I, you thought uh, back then. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and the only person I'd ever known who was sober was a friend of my parents, you know, so I didn't have any associations with my generation, and... You know, the other thing I want to say is you, you were a musician. I, I think you probably are still a musician. And even now, even in 2008, um, there's a pretty strong association of m- the world of music and musicians and drugs. And it's even fashionable. I mean, we're not ne- it's not necessarily talked about as addiction. But, um, I mean, you were... That's still... A combination that is has a kind of allure, kind of, even as a stamp of approval in the culture. Uh, yeah, I guess I um I, I don't know if I see it uh, um, as a stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's more something that's used for sensationalizing people, like Amy Winehouse, or, right? Um, that guy from that band, that English band, Baby Dolls, or whatever. Um, I, you know, that, that it's just that, that people are going to become addicts and people are going to be alcoholics. And 
yeah, maybe there is a tendency for artists to experiment in those ways, or I don't even the word experiment isn't really right to, yeah. to act in those ways, um, and you know perhaps they're kind of outside of the mainstream culture, so they're it's part of their sort of form of rebellion. But I think that mostly they just get more attention because they're public figures. Okay. Uh, I think that alcoholism and addiction are just things that permeate our society. Um, and I think that food and sex addiction are actually the biggest problems in hmm. our culture, hmm. uh, beyond, uh, you know, in terms of the, the suffering that they cause. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the dr- drug and alcohol addiction are sort of – they're very obvious – Right. But uh, the food addiction particularly is one that just – and, well, I, uh, the sex addiction too. I mean what's the most successful business on the internet? You know? Right, right. So, uh, um, so those things, they just – they kind of permeate our culture in, in ways that we don't even see. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and so I, I don't – I know what you're saying about you know, that it, it's still prominent in that, in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know a lot of sober musicians. Okay. <laughs> so you met one sober musician who you liked. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, if you want to know the, the, the final sort of story was that, as has been typical in my life, I was guided by a woman, you know. <laughs> my, it was my mother uh, who was a great guide for me in certain ways. And at the time uh, I got sober, I was living with a woman who went to a smoking program. <laughs> and told, they told her to write down every time she had a drink or had a cigarette. And it turned out that she was always having a beer. And so her sponsor said, it looks like you have a drinking problem, too. <laughs> So, you know, the the way these things unfold, she came home with the 20 questions, which is a way of judging whether you are an addict. I took the test and passed or failed, however mm-hmm. you want to define it, and, of course, said, well, that's ridiculous, that's crazy, they don't know what they're talking about, and then went on a six-month binge, mm-hmm. at the end of which uh, everything had pretty much fallen apart uh, professionally for me and emotionally and spiritually. And I just thought, okay, well, there's, I've tried everything else. I'll try this. Hmm. Uh, but it was sort of – it was for me kind of a uh, – I didn't really expect much to come from it, from getting sober. What did – did you get into an AA, a 12-step group? Well, I, I don't really talk about that specifically, what, what um, program – I got into. Okay. Just, I know that's that's kind of it's kind of drawing a, a ridiculous line, but that's the place where I draw my anonymity. <laughs> okay. Well, no, that's fine. And actually, when we did a program about recovery before, it was an issue even for some people who found the program incredibly helpful. They were concerned. Yeah. I mean, it's a big it's a big part of. You know, I I acknowledge that I have broken my anonymity right, <laughs> on a right. public level, and it just. You know, it, it, I don't say the words, and it's it's a pure kind of. It's almost like, uh, you know, superstition. Okay, all right, that's fine. Then I will. I will. Because I that. don't really believe in the in the in the principle as it's at, in in the fundamentalist sense at all. Mm-hmm. The way that it's the way that it's, um, you know, people play it out these days. Yeah, although it is kind of part of the mystery somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you've written that. Well, I mean, this is I'm paraphrasing, but you you talk about an, an an analysis of desire as something that is at the root of the compatibility between Buddhism and the twelve steps. Mm. Talk to me about that. 
Yeah, well, it's it's um, comes down to the second noble truth in Buddhism, right? So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering and the, the, the unsatisfactoriness of life. And then the Buddha says the cause of that is our, is our desire or our clinging, you know, our craving. Um, and so he's pointing at something that is exactly what addiction is about. And it as the more I've, I started to look at that, the more I realized that really addiction wasn't something outside of the normal human behavior. It was just an extreme case mm-hmm. of exactly what the Buddha was saying was the cause of all our problems. Kind of a magnification of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk about it as being a continuum of of craving and attachment that in this sort of the middle zone we call it normal mm-hmm. um, and then when you get out to more the edges of that continuum we call that addiction but it's essentially the same thing and and the in a way the spirituality of recovery is that we get to see that so clearly mm-hmm. uh, where the, the normal person who's actually enslaved by the same kind of forces doesn't see it because they're able to kind of get through life without so much discomfort that they have to face it. Hmm. And what's really fascinating to me as I as I read your work is how you you live with, if I can put it this way, with these different sacred texts, which is the teachings of the Buddha and the Big Book. You know, and you say that yeah. you know, although meditation is only included formally in the Step Eleven, you use it to facilitate all the steps. I thought maybe one way we would talk about that and go through it is um, actually the way you organize the book, um, which is the first part, because because we can't we can't go through all the twelve steps and really do yeah. it justice um, in an hour. But the 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 three parts, the steps mm-hmm. one through three, and then four through nine, and ten through twelve, and so let's just kind of move through that. And I want to, and I've read carefully and I want to ask you some questions based on those those the way you've grouped those together and and again as you kind of hold these different teachings and sacred texts together yeah. does that sound all right sure okay so Great. so you you describe um, steps one through three as the surrender steps mm-hmm. something that I'm quite aware of um, in the work I do, and also was aware of this in the work I did um, with Hazelden a couple of years ago, is how there are some real problems with the language of the 12 steps in a mo- in modern Western imagination, right? You noticed that. Uh, well, yeah. and you know, and you, <laughs> and you, you talk about how the Buddhists um, will sometimes balk, but other people balk as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? And so, you know, yeah, just the basic sure. in, in step one, we admitted we were powerless. I mean... 21st century Americans don't admit that they are powerless <laughs> over anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and you and you write, and I think this is really part of it. That's for for many of us now. I think powerlessness equals passivity um, mm-hmm. or giving up. Um, but that's not that's not how how you've come to experience it. No, I think that. Anybody who sits down and closes their eyes and tries to follow their breath immediately sees that they are not in control of their mind and body. Hmm. And if you want to call that 
powerless or just not in control. <laughs> it does, you know, it doesn't really matter. Right, so and that is more palatable somehow, not in control. Yes, uh-huh. it, yeah, it is, and uh, I think that partly the language of the steps is meant to be um, dramatic, mm-hmm. and uh, so um, they really get your attention. Um, and I think to do the steps, you have to. You have to want to do the steps in a way. You have to want to see your powerlessness. If somebody's trying to force that on you, you know, you're going to – you are going to balk. But I got to a point where I, where I kind of just reflected on how al- – what happened to me when alcohol got in my body. Hmm. And what happened was that the craving overcame me. And sometimes before it got in my body, um, the obsession overcame me. And to say, yeah – Am I, am I actually powerless? Can I do nothing? No, that's not true. It's not that I couldn't do anything. It's just that the, the force of energy is so strong in that direction that it's unlikely that I will do anything. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a problematic word in certain ways. Now, there's the, the Buddhist teaching that I also think I wrote about, about you know, sickness, old age, and death. Uh, something else that you know, you know, our culture doesn't like Americans to think about. don't don't really accept, yeah. yeah. Or even the just imp- the basic principle that suffering is a central experience of life. That's not the way oh, Americans yeah. describe life. Yeah, and and that's you know, suffering is the t- the common translation of the word dukkha, which as as is true of many of the terms in Buddhism, our English translation doesn't quite grasp it, so we have to use a variety of words. So unsatisfactoriness is actually hmm. kind of more accurate in a lot of ways hmm. in the sense that there's no moment at which you arrive at total satisfaction hmm. in your life. Hmm. You have a moment of intense pleasure and then it's gone. It's, it's, it doesn't continue. Then, you know, it's, as I like to say, after sex, a cigarette, you know. <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, sex wasn't enough. And I you, mean, you, you used also this example of your of the traditional commercial at the end of the Super Bowl. Right. You know, what is uh, that? You've won the, you've won the MVP award for the Super Bowl, right. and now I'm going to Disneyland. Like it wasn't enough to reach the <laughs> pinnacle of your profession, but in fact, it, the only place to go after that is the place where dreams are made. You know, because mm. you've already achieved everything in reality. Right. Yeah, I mean it's never enough. Uh, and that's the that's the real powerlessness, I think, you mm-hmm. know, that it's that it's it's never enough. You never you you never have what you want, you know. And and the fact is that that's because desire tells you that once you get it once you satisfy it, you will be okay. And that's just not true. Hmm. It's this constant, it's this lie that, that we keep believing. You know, we keep uh, trying to kick the football and Lucy keeps pulling it away, you know, hmm. and it's, we never get it that, that the way to happiness is not to satisfy desires. The way to happiness is to stop having desires. Easy. <laughs> And this is where, you know, this is something I love about spending my time thinking about religion and the great traditions, because they are, this is just an incredibly incisive analysis of the human condition. And it's the kind of analysis that other disciplines don't make, right? And, And then I, it's fascinating to put this Buddhist insight into 
into the things, the basic things we struggle with being human together with this, these spiritual tools of the 12 steps. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I also want to say very quickly that um, when we set up the idea that not having desire is the way to be happy, then we just create another goal and and another way of beating ourselves up. Oh, I've still got desire. What's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. And, you know, desire is a natural human quality. Uh, You know, we wouldn't survive if we didn't have desire. So it's – that's – you know, that's what's great to me about spiritual teachings is that when you get down to it, there's always a paradox there. Hmm. And it's nothing – it's never just this, okay, just do this and then then everything's okay or just – and that's the argument that I have with fundamentalism including fundamentalist – 12-step, which there is, plenty Mm -hmm. of, and fundamentalist Buddhist. You know, there isn't just one answer. It's, you know, people complain to Ajahn Chah, the great Thai master, you know, I hear you giving instructions to one person to do this, and then you tell someone else to do the opposite. And he says, yeah, if a blind person's walking down the road and they start to fall off to the left side, I go, go right, go right. And if they're falling off to the right side, I say, go left, go left. So if I tell everybody just go go right, go right, some people are going to be falling off the road. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not – there isn't this one answer that, mm-hmm. that satisfies us for, in every situation. That's why we have to be mindful. That's mm-hmm. why we have to be awake. That's mm-hmm. the whole point of being awake. Otherwise, we could just fall asleep and, you know, and follow you – know, you know, just roll down the road you mm-hmm. know, and, and there would be no problem. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, the other language in – that comes into um, steps two and three of the 12 steps is, mm-hmm. um, is about the higher power. Um, right. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Um, and it, it, it was that, do you think was that was especially, I think the language of higher power is, again, as you said, it's dramatic and it doesn't quite seem to fit a modern imagination, but I wonder if it was especially challenging for you as a Buddhist. You know, when I, when I got sober, I kind of kept my Buddhism separate from my program. I couldn't. I looked at the steps, and I had no idea how they were, how they could fit with Buddhism. Hmm. But I realized I needed to do them, so I just um, kind of didn't. I didn't think about it. And and the truth is that I had been through a very intense kind of devotional practice as well with this homeless guru <laughs> that I mentioned, right. and and he had kind of reignited in me. I think that thing that goes back to my childhood. My that that. Uh, devotional quality that I developed as a little altar boy. So it wasn't really a big problem for me. Um, I think it got it – became, and this happens to a lot of people that in the beginning I was able to just kind of turn it all over. And then after like five or six years sober, then I started to really question and started to really look. And, and this this actually is a common thing. Um, I was talking with another teacher about this recently, how – People early in recovery can kind of abandon themselves to the program, but later on, when they the fog clears and they start to really they start to question the language of the steps and and it doesn't resonate for them anymore mm. with their internal experience. That's where there's a lot of times a spiritual crisis for people. And at, at ten years sober, and around that time, a lot of people wind up drinking or you know just uh, 
having some kind of a crisis. And is it, do you think, specifically around this notion of, well, what do I mean when I talk about a higher power? Who is this? What is this? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, in some ways, I question when people say, oh, I can't, you know, I can't stay sober because I can't find a higher power. I sort of go, well, I don't know. If it, do you really have to have a higher power to get sober? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it says. I, for me, it's it's about deepening and moving forward in my spiritual path, my spiritual growth. And so I, th- I think it's more than the words. I think the words are pointing to the problem, was that, which is that people lose their way, their sense of of connectedness, of of uh, of surrender, you know, of mm. of 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 being uh, doing something. That, I guess having faith or being okay um, and trusting in the process. Mm. Um, in some ways, it's like they take it back. You know, you turn it over, but then you take it back, and you try to, um, you know, the ego comes back and tries to run the show again. You, you've written that um, sometimes people will call you who are just getting into recovery and uh, they know that you're Buddhist and they'll ask you if you'll tell them that they don't need a higher, higher power, that you'll absolve them of that. <laughs> what do you say it, to them? You know, this is what I say. I say that the second step says that you believe that there's a way to recover and to grow spiritually. And the third step says that you're going to commit yourself to the path of spiritual growth and sobriety. And that's what I think they say. I I think God is just language that we use to say those things, and that's what's important. You know, praying, oh, God, you know, I turn it all over to you, and then thinking that you're done, I mean, that's just silly. You know, that's magical thinking. Hmm. No, it's... it's, and, And a higher power... You know, we can, there's a lot of ways we can talk about higher power. One of the main ways I talk about higher power is the law of cause and effect, also known as karma. And, you know, I just say to people, well, you know, if you do something, there's going to be a result, right? Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. So if you act in ways that are going to lead to more harmony and happiness in your life, you're going to have more of that. If you act in unskillful ways and immoral ways, you're going to get those results. And when you turn your will in your life over, it means that you are, instead of following your own reactive, self-centered, selfish, <laughs> greedy mind, you're saying, there's a better way to live. I've heard about it, <laughs> or I, have, you know, I believe in it now. And I'm going to, instead of following that reactive mind, I'm going to follow this more skillful path, which is in Buddhism, right intention, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing that I need to live this way. Then we turn our will over, that's the right intention. We turn our life over, that's the actions. That's actually acting on the intention Mm. and living in a skillful way. So for me, it's not religious or even about God. Although I do believe that, you know, my, what I call God includes karma, and karma is a big part of what I call God. You seem to have found in the Buddhist notion of the refuges, of taking refuge, the three refuges, and the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha as a, a kind of Buddhist corollary that has help, been helpful to you in, in thinking about that notion of surrender. Yeah, the, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the way the refuges are taught and, and the way they're chanted about, mm-hmm. it's clear that they are meant to be 
well, just the, the word, refuge. Right. I mean, there's meant to protect you. And turning your will and your life over, one of the things that people feel is fear around that because they feel like they are letting go of control. And they're, you know, what are they going to trust in? So, so Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, you know, represent the, the wisdom mind and the truth of the way things are. And then the sacred life, we could say, the, the community mm-hmm. uh, that, that shares that sacred life. And, and certainly that's um, where, where we find um, safety and it's where we find guidance. It's where it's, you know, it really is um, what we want to follow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Buddha means awake. So essentially that means I'm committing myself to being mindful today. You know, I take refuge. Right. I do, do that every morning. At the end of my meditation, I take refuge in the Buddha. I, I'm taking refuge in being mindful today. I take refuge in the Dharma. I'm taking refuge in the, the truth of the way things are, not trying to, uh, not denying that, not being in denial about the way things are, and trying to, trying to understand the way things are, uh, trying to accept the way things are, trying to accept impermanence, trying to accept suffering. Um, and trying to live in harmony with the law of karma. Hmm. Um, I want to keep moving. This is uh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, so when a person is in recovery and you move through these steps and you get to step four, um, I know surrender is hard, but there's something very <laughs> challenging about these steps four through nine. You talk about this as the stage of investigation and responsibility. Um, I've often, I, when I got close to um, to a recovery center, to Hazelden, I, I felt that, you know, what an amazing thing it would be if everyone in the world did step four, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. uh, whether they were addicted or not, um, make, make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Mm. Um, yeah, more you, dramatic language, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, um, you know, you talked about when you were there, you know, recall, going back through broken relationships and violence and recklessness. And, and you wrote, each of these memories was like a slap in the face and awakening to another view of the world. And then you write, this was slowly, painfully, the beginning of compassion developing in me. Now explain mm. that. Uh, so when we can admit deeply to our own failings, then we can start to potentially accept the failings of others. And that's what I meant by that, Hmm. that it's harder to judge others when you've seen how your own weaknesses and the mistakes that you've made and really been honest about them. Then you can see. Then you can see someone else. Instead of saying, "Oh, what an idiot," or some worse language, saying, "Oh, that's really sad that they're doing that to themselves, and that they're doing that to the world, or to me even, because they are creating this suffering for themselves, and and indeed they are expressing their own suffering." You know, I, I had a. Uh, a boss one time who um, I was driving uh, magazine deliveries and um, and his uh, his bookkeeper 
had a really, it was really an angry person and was really difficult to be around. And I remember saying to my boss one time, oh, you know, he's such a pain. You know, he said, you know what I do when I hear him talking like that? I think that's the way he talks to himself. Hmm. He's walking around with those, that voice in his own head. And then that, then I feel compassion for him rather than being angry with him. Mm. I thought that was a very wise thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to live that way though. Well, of course. I mean, that's why you have to, that's why you have mindfulness to try to remind you, you know, the, the, root of the word mindfulness, that the word we translate it, mindfulness, sati, the root of that word is, has to do with memory. And, and, you know, I often say to people, it's easy to be mindful in a moment if you just remember to do it. Hmm. The hard part is to remember to be mindful. Right. You know, concentration, that's difficult to sustain. <laughs> mindfulness, easy, you, oh, okay. know, you know, easy to have to say, oh, be mindful, okay, yeah, all right, here I am sitting in the studio, I see the microphone, you know. Here I am. I feel that. But how do I remember to do that all the time? That's that's the hard part. So that's why we practice. That's mm. what practice is all about, right? Is to is to embed that that uh, habitual tendency to to remember. I've been I've been doing yoga really seriously for the first time, and somebody said, I mean, this is true. You talk about meditation practice. You also talk about yoga practice. And mm-hmm. the teacher said the other day, we say practice. I mean, I'd never thought about yeah. the, what that word means. It doesn't mean ever that you're getting it right. It means you're trying. Right? Yeah, although you know, I I actually don't agree with that in translate that, that interpretation. That kind of translation. Of it. There's another way of thinking. When I go to my see my doctor, he's practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. And I hope he's not Practicing. just le- figuring right. out how, you know, yeah. so he's not rehearsing. So yeah. I think that I, th- I believe that when we say meditation practice, we're really talking about something which, which is, that's my practice to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's my habitual thing to do. The skillful so, action. Because I've heard many people say that, what, what, what you said. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, I was kind of like, you know, what I don't like about that, of co- although, of course, it's true. We never get it right mm-hmm. <laughs> in meditation. But what don't, I don't like about it is this kind of way in which we undercut ourselves. And there's a lot of that that goes on anyway in our minds. So to add that in like, oh, you know, I'll never get meditation right. It's like, no, you know, I'm always getting it right. Mm-hmm. It's just perfect the way it is, you know. Well, and this this also does get at, uh, I think, a, a hard question about, is, is, um, you know, you, you talk about your experience, and this is an experience many people have had of, 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 this, of implementing this practice, um, of seeing, seeing the destructive patterns of their own behavior, and then... Um, in in that act of seeing, becoming aware, beginning to change, unraveling the habits, um, and yet we're, we're learning more about biological roots of addiction. Um, we know more about mental illness and even just the stubbornness of human behavior that may have to do with how our neurons fire. Um, I, I just I wonder: do you do you believe? Do you feel that that most of us or all of us in some part of ourselves are capable of this kind of change or how, how do you wrestle with that hmm. well uh one day at a time hmm. you know the, and i'll say that 
there are some things, and they talk about this. I think Bill Wilson talks about this in the Twelve and Twelve. Uh, there are some things that we can that we can really change. And like, I don't have the obsession to drink anymore or to take drugs. Occasionally, I might think it would be nice to have a cold beer, you know. But I don't have the obsession anymore. So that has really been uprooted. Um, but in, there are other things, as you say, that are. Uh, perhaps, yeah, somehow more hardwired into us. Certainly, um, I mean, I think sex addiction, uh, getting back to one mm-hmm. of my favorite topics, you know, is is um, really, I mean, what a challenge. You know, there's, that's an energy that you have in you. And you don't just turn that off. You don't just, you know, there's nothing to put down. You know, you can't just right. stop going to the liquor store. Right. You know, that's, it's within you. And the same with food addiction. I mean, people who have food addiction have to eat their they drug of eat. choice right. three times a day. Mm. You know, I mean, what a challenge. So, yeah, th- that's uh, – so, so there's two different ways we could say, you know, that we look at this. There are things that, that change that really do get uprooted. And then there's things that we learn to live with. And, and living with – I mean, that's – the first noble truth, you know, that there's suffering and that, and that you don't get to turn it off. And, that, and so it's how we hold the experience. It's how we live with it. I mean, that's the grace of, of spiritual life of, uh, is, is how we live with our struggles, with our suffering. I mean, you know, when the, when the master is diagnosed with cancer, you know, the stories about uh, Suzuki Roshi, I mean, the, you see someone who he's not comfortable. He's not even happy. But there's some way in which he's living with that suffering and and f- finding something beyond. I mean, that's why happiness is, is not about pleasure. Well, right. yeah. mm-hmm. Not all about what's going right. Hmm? Yeah. You've, the hindrance, hindrances is another mm. Buddhist teaching that you, you seem to find as kind of a corollary again that was helpful for you in making sense of this idea of moral inventory? Talk, describe that. Yeah, well, well, one of the reasons I talk about hindrances for, for the inventory is because the hindrances are impersonal. And I, I think it's helpful to depersonalize your inventory a little bit. Um, what I mean, do you, you mean have by to that? Do, well, I, I mean that certainly you have to go through you know, your personal, the personal things that you've done. But if you see them in the context of human behavior, rather than it's Kevin who did this, you know, Mm -hmm. but rather seeing that, you know, desire and aversion, these are human things and everybody has them. So I don't have to beat myself up over it. Right. Restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, doubt. (laughs) Those are pretty chronic afflictions of uh, just about everybody I know, including myself. Yeah. And, and, you know, they show up in different, all of religious traditions in one form or another. Mm-hmm. I mean, the seven deadly sins, one, right. <laughs> a term I really rebel to against. But, but really, it's, the, you know, pretty accurate. The list is pretty accurate there, too. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, I was looking for models of how to approach inventory from a Buddhist perspective. I mean, when, when I first saw that step, I thought, this is really un-Buddhist. I mean, you're supposed to think about the past. Like hmm. Buddhists are supposed just trying to be in the present moment. Right. We don't want to think to about the past. Dwell on everything you did wrong. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that 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 seemed that seemed wrong to me. I shouldn't be doing that. But uh, I came to see that that um, 
if I'm going to really change, if I'm going to turn my will and life over, which kind of you know, shift the direction of the ship, you know, somehow turn it, um, I'm going to have to understand how I got here because I'm carrying all, all that past is what conditioned my present state. Mm-hmm. So that, that karmic past has to be looked at before I really understand the patterns, my habitual patterns of action and speech and thought. So, uh, so I, I kind of saw that as a, as a way of kind of seeing how did I get here and then, you know, what a, what a, what's the playing field that I'm starting out with? You know, there's a way in which you look at step three and you think, oh, I turned my life over to God. Okay, now I don't have to worry anymore. Shouldn't mm. I be done? Why are mm. there any more steps? Mm. But, of course, that's not the way spiritual growth works because it isn't magic. There isn't a God who comes down and goes, you're okay, you're fixed now. That's, that's not, that's a, you know, child, childish version of God. So, mm-hmm. so what we're really doing is we're saying, okay, I really want to change, but if I'm going to change, I have to know what am I changing exactly? And, and what do I have to look out for? And how does the Buddhist understanding the teaching about or the practice around the hindrances, how, how does that help practically? I mean, how do you employ that? So the hindrances are taught, they, they are actually, in the text, there are five hindrances to concentration. That's what they're really taught around, hmm. but we've expanded that out kind of uh, to be kind of like it's getting in the way of, uh, you know, life in some way. And so looking at um, noticing, so, so essentially it's a mindfulness practice, okay. all right? So you become, start to notice when craving arises. No, you're not going to notice every craving, but when there's a strong craving. Because desire is the first hindrance. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you're on retreat, particularly, you can really start to focus on these things. And notice when, on retreat in silence and really when the mind starts to quiet down, you start to be able to really pick up the subtleties of a moment of desire arising and seeing that. And in the seeing, very often, it's quite natural to just let go. It just kind of dissolves. Uh, you know, Buddha, the Buddha, when he's tempted by Mara, he just says, I see you, Mara, and Mara slips away. And Mara is the, you know, the kind of devil in Buddhism, right? Mm. So, so it's just the seeing, and, and so it's seeing aversion. I mean, when you, when you realize, I'm really angry, and when you stop and just feel that, my God, you don't, you don't want to continue that. There's mm. just, it's very natural. You know, kind of, oh, okay, let me just, let me breathe and let go of that. That's painful. Now, is there something I need to do about, you know, that, that stimulated that anger? Okay, let me act, you know, let me take care of that. But let me not do it out of my own burning ha- hatred. You know, that's just mm-hmm. painful for me. Hmm. Um, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, the, you know, much more kind of physical elements and um, that... Uh, you know, it's very interesting. You know, I say to people, okay, try being mindful of, of being sleepy. You know, and that's very kind of counterintuitive. I mean, it, being sleepy is sort of all about, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. not being mindful, turning, turning off the mind and body. But, you know, if you look at the, the classic, uh, you know, triggers for addiction, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, right, the halt. Mm-hmm. Well, tired is one of the things. Very often people kind of get tired. You know, alcohol suppresses fatigue. So you cover your, you know, I'm tired at the end of a work day. I'll go out and have some drinks so I can have some fun. Um, you know, very typical for binge eaters hmm. to, to binge late at night when they're tired. Hmm. Um, 
and you know the, all those energies kind of get uh, unleashed when there, there's a little less uh, control going on when you're tired. Mm. So, so starting to become aware, okay, what's it feel like to be tired? Oh, look at that feeling that's coming up now. Oh, look at that craving that's rising. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and in some same, way that disarms them. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that's what mindfulness, that's a good, that's a good um, description of what mindfulness does. It is, it is disarming. It's, it's that way, you know, these energies are things that come in when we're unaware and when you flip on the light, they kind of go, oh, ah, oh, sorry. You know, they, <laughs> you know the, they're embarrassed. I mean, you're, you know, it's, it, the, the awareness itself is very cleansing. It's not always enough, of course. You know, if it were, then we wouldn't need 12 steps. You know, we just, I mean, I do know people who claim that mindfulness was all they needed to get sober. It wasn't enough for me. Um, but it's really, it's, it's very cleansing. It's mm. very purifying. This reminds me also, you wrote, and we're, you know, moving on to step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. You talked about an exercise one of your teachers showed you of just saying a harsh word and feeling that, mm. the effect of that word in your body, and saying mm-hmm. a kind word and feeling that word resonate in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just actually teaching an exercise to some kids where I had them smile and then I had them frown. And it was really interesting. They really got it. They were like, wow, when I smile, I feel happy. When I frown, I started thinking about these bad things. Um, Doesn't that seem like it's too simple, though? And how can we take that seriously? Of course. Or are it, we it, that simple? Um, yes and no. You know, there are a lot of things that condition our mind states. Uh, Some of them are the way we're holding our body. And some of them are, you know, the way our mother treated us when we were kids. And some of them are, you know, human energies, uh, the time of day. And, I mean, there's just, Mm. you know, there's a lot of different energies. And so... You know, one of the things I love about Buddhism is there's lots of practices, right? So it's not about, you know, anytime you feel this, just do that. It's here's here's a palette to draw from. And when you start to – you're studying your mind, right? The searching and fearless moral inventory is mm-hmm. also what we do when we meditate. We're studying ourselves. I talk about like learning the landscape of your own mind and starting to see the way you react to certain things and how when certain certain um, – Thoughts come to your mind. Certain moods then follow them, and all these uh, interconnections that are going on, and and learning as many practices and ways of working with those things as you can, and knowing that sometimes, you know, smiling uh, ain't going to do it. You know, what I really need to do is get to a meeting, or what I really need to do is get on antidepressants. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, I don't I don't believe in the you know one size fits all. You've got to really learn the learn the whole p- palette of of practices and possibilities for help because we need a lot of help i do <laughs> um you um so so st- you go through step 4 and step 5 admitting to to god to yourselves and to another human being the nature of your wrongs becoming ready to have god remove all these defects of character that's step 6 step 7 mm-hmm. humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings and then Step eight, 
make a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, which is huge. Um, You write that at first, when you hit step eight, you didn't think there was much to this, which was kind of surprising to me. (laughs) I didn't think there was much to making the list. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I wasn't clear about that. I thought, well, you know, it's easy to make the list. But But I didn't realize that there were insights that could come just by making the list. Um, I thought that it was all about the amends themselves. I see. And even in the making of the list, that was a huge experience. Because you you see who you hurt. And who did you hurt? Well, it turns out it's usually the people. We always hurt the one we love, you know. It's Mm -hmm. the people we care about the most. And and you start to see these patterns of... of, um, of relationship and and how you know where the the roots of your social um, pain exists, um, and certainly you know for me it was my family and and my uh, sexual relationships. I mean I call them sexual romantic relationships. Mm. Um, that where most of that uh, pain seemed to seemed to reside. So that's where I needed to do the healing. And the amends is just a, you know, it's an outward way. So you mean really it was the making of the list that was more painful than than actually then going to those people? Not at the time, but over time, what I've realized is that it's, under, it's kind of understanding that list and understanding what it's telling me about myself, what, what needs work. You know, where I need the healing. And that's why working on relationships became, mm-hmm. after my first year of sobriety, became really the central uh, aspect of my, my recovery, the central issue mm-hmm. of recovery. And, and, it's, and the, the truth is that that's true for most of the people that, I've, that I know that, um, and the ones I've worked with. Um, so, so yeah, the, I, I think the, the 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 making amends is is torturous, certainly, uh, at times. But it's over after it's over, and but the list is still there, and and the healing is a lot more than just calling somebody up and saying I'm sorry or sending somebody some money or you know some sort of outward expression of amends. It's much, much deeper than that. Hmm. You wrote something I found very, um, I find it's beautifully written and very, um, really makes me think it's very affecting. You wrote, when we spend years drinking and using, holding in our feelings, covering over our feelings, wreaking havoc in the lives of everyone we know, running, always running, never coming home to our true self, we bury some essential part of ourselves. We bury it alive. When, through this process of opening, we touch again the truth of our heart's deepest craving for love, something bursts forth, and often it flows in a river of tears. I, uh, yeah. I haven't been hearing much of your story, but I mean, did you have a, was there a cathartic moment? Was, was there a time when this all uh, burst forth in you? Well, before I got sober... Um, on my after my first or at the end of my first meditation retreat, uh, uh, it sounds like that's what I was talking about. Mm. Um, to, I mean, that's what it reminds me of. At the end of my first retreat, I, I, don't, I don't know if I, 
if that was in the book. Um, the, the teacher had interviewed everybody one-on-one uh, -on -one except me, and that was partly because we were kind of sort of already had a relationship and uh, a friendly relationship, and I think he thought I was sort of taken care of already, and <laughs> and I just, I guess you could just say I regressed, you know, <laughs> and I I went to his uh, office during a during a meditation period, and uh, when he actually I think he they were playing a tape, and and I left the meditation hall and went to his office and and kind of whined, you didn't give me an interview and. <laughs> And, um, you know, he sat me down and took me through, actually, abandonment, and um, which was actually, he was amazed how effective it was. I mean, I just, I, yeah, I, I just connected to this moment of being four years old and being left at nursery school hmm. for the first time. And the tears came, and the rest of that week, um, I cried every day. And um, I wrote a song that week called Vipassana Blues, which is about <laughs> that. Uh, the one line is, you're trying to open up your mind, but you better know you might not like what you find. And uh, actually, it was that was the week that John Lennon died, which mm. uh, allowed for a lot more tears. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we spoke a little bit. Then there's that what follows that is making direct amends where that is possible. Um, you spoke a little bit a, a little while ago about how when you feel, when you observe the anger in yourself, you realize that it's it's hurting you right then. In fact, it's not doing yeah. anything to the person you're angry at. Mm. I thought you, you you speak in a very interesting way about forgiveness. I've always been struck by how practical, in fact, that teaching, the teachings about forgiveness are in the New Testament, although in our culture, I think they sound a bit unreasonable <laughs> somehow. <laughs> right. Um, but you, you also talk about another exercise, or you actually ask your reader to think of someone they resent or fear and haven't forgiven, and to feel what that failure to forgive is doing inside them. Hmm. Very interesting. Very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You propose just, that we might need a new word for taking. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, what did I say in the book? No, I, um, you know, it is, I wrote it a few years ago, and I have a terrible memory, which I blame on marijuana and <laughs> old age. Oh, that's convenient. I know, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not going to let you uh, get away with it, though. Uh, well, darn. talk about no, your, I, yeah. I, I think that I, what I'm saying is that we are benefiting from forgiveness, we th we think we're we're giving something to someone, but we're actually getting something. We are getting our own relief for that, or mm -hmm. relief from our own resentment, our own pains. I think that's what I meant. Right, and that's that what it, I mean right now. That we anyway. do it for ourselves in a sense, as much as we do it for the other person. That it's yeah. healing for us. Um, I have to say, this just, you know, somehow reading your book, I mean, I've been familiar with the 12 Steps for many years, and something that was really clear to me, just the way you'd laid them out, is how the incredible psychological savvy, I mean, I knew this, but when I see how there's this incremental move, making a moral inventory, I mean, even just the verbs, you know, mm -hmm. admitting yeah. to another human being what those wrongs were, then being ready to have God remove these defects and humbly asking for these shortcomings mm -hmm. to be removed, then making a list 
and becoming willing to make amends and then making direct amends, that progression is so spiritually enlightened somehow, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. There have been, you know, when I got to step 12 in my own work, which is where, among other things, you're encouraged to do service and to help other alcoholics, it says, and depending on your addiction, but uh, and really more generally to help other people, I, I kind of I realized that there was a way in which the steps were tricking us, <laughs> you know, to do the to do the right things that would lead us to to happiness, um, and but it's not always. Um, it's not always so direct. It, you, you don't always see exactly what you're being asked to do mm-hmm. un, until until you've done it, and then you you know you think, oh, I'm doing this to help other alcoholics, and then you do something and you realize how happy it makes you. Mm. You're like, oh wow, that was that was interesting. <laughs> I thought it was about them. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in there. Um, yeah. There's a there's a some a Buddhist phrase you use I hadn't heard before um, because one way in which Buddhism and the recovery movement are quite different is in the communal collective nature of recovery right but you talk about this mm-hmm. the Buddhist regard for noble friends and noble conversation it's really it lovely sh- yeah it is it is it's a beautiful phrase and it's it shocked me. Uh, when I first heard it, because <laughs> uh, there is this this sutta in which Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, who was his cousin, he was his attendant for twenty five years, and, and Ananda is kind of the the straight man for the Buddha, so he's always saying things, and he says in this case, well, noble friends and noble conversation are surely fifty percent of the or half of the spiritual path, and the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. The noble friends and noble conversation are the whole of the spiritual path. Mm. And, it's, you know, I remember the, the evening I heard my teacher say that and I'm just kind of going, what? You know, what is he talking about? That doesn't make it. That can't be right. Because it, it is such a an, – it's an individual process of observing your own mind, right? I mean, that at its most basic. So how does well, – that's, that... that's what meditation is. Yeah. yeah. But, but uh, if you look at the – Eightfold Path, the, there's only three aspects of the Eightfold Path that are directly about meditation. And I would say, first of all, that the Buddha was not being literal. <laughs> uh, he was, you know, exaggerating for effect. Mm-hmm. Um, As Bill Wilson could, did in writing this yeah, yeah, I mean, I, cu- I could be wrong. So I'm not, I'm not making that as a definitive statement. I would mm-hmm. rather, you know, we can ask a monk about that or someone more... Uh, you know, reliable than I, but um, but uh, he's trying to get people's attention, and clearly the way he sets up the society, uh, you know, the for the monks is they are bound to the lay people. They are not allowed to grow food. They are not allowed mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. keep food oh, for a day. You know, and so they totally depend on people. They live together. Now, mm-hmm. the Buddha recommends going off for periods of time into the forest to meditate. But it's interesting. It, he doesn't mention how you're supposed to eat when you do that if you're a monk. <laughs> so presumably, he means go off in a forest that's near a village. 
<laughs> where you can walk down in the morning and get your alms and fill your bowl and go back and do your practice. So you're never really far away from the culture. And, and um, yeah, I, that's, it is way underemphasized in the West. And I see more of it. I see that the Buddhist communities, as they're maturing in the West, are seeing more and more the importance of community mm. <laughs> rather than a bunch of people get together and meditate mm. and go home. Uh, but yeah, even, you know, the, using the, the language like that and cultivating noble friendship and noble conversation, it's a very um, nourishing kind of way to talk about that about community. I mean, I feel like we need new yeah. words to talk about community anyway, even as we rediscover it. Yeah. I love so that. The, no, the, noble, the yeah. nobleness of yeah, it. Yeah, the nobility of it. Well, and it's in the 12 steps we talk about don't hang out with lower companions. Hmm. And it's the hmm. Buddha talks about the exact same thing. Hmm. You know, don't go and hang out with gamblers and, you know, and people who are, you know, dancing or whatever, you know, the things that the monks aren't supposed to do. Yeah. Um, isn't it interesting to look at your set of friends and say which which of these are noble mm. and which of these are you know less mm. noble and mm. yeah i mean you know people in recovery this is one of the issues that you run into particularly young people hey i got all my friends they're all still drinking you right, know right yeah it's like sorry you know <laughs> yeah you can hang out with them but you're going to get what you get when mm. you do that mm. and and it's not going to support your work, it's part of turning your will and your life over to recovery, to the recovery process, is letting go of things that harm you. And it's, that includes people. Hmm. Um, no, I, I, I think sometimes um, stereotypical ideas about recovery don't, or superficial ideas don't realize that it is really not just a program but a, a way of life. Um, and you describe the, um, you you know, one way you talk about that in Buddhist terms is a daily application of loving kindness. I just wonder if you would say say some more about that. Hmm. Well. How does this idea of loving kindness fit into the way you live your sobriety or recovery? Yeah, the... Loving kindness is the term, another difficult word to translate, metta, M-E-T-T-A. Mm-hmm. Just translating this loving kindness, it's kind of unconditional love. I think it, um, agape, is that the mm-hmm. The, the practical word? love th- of the New Testament. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think it's related to that. Mm. Um, and it's really, it's a natural outgrowth of being present. You know, when you stop and you look around at the world and, and just literally anywhere you are and breathe and are quiet and look, there's, it's quite natural for sort of an upwelling of connectedness mm-hmm. that I'm part of this, you know, whether it's nature or whether it's just, you know, a building. I mean, that we sort of realize, oh, I, you know, this is, we are not separate. There's, there's this interconnectedness. And out of that interconnect, and that, that, Loving kindness is kind of an expression of that interconnectedness. It's seeing that, you know, I am part of this and there's a joy in it. There's a, there's a, a warmth uh, in it that, that you feel just by being present. You know, mindfulness 
um, is talked about in these kind of mechanistic terms. We have mindfulness-based mm. stress reduction, you know, and these right. things that are <laughs> almost clinical. But mindfulness is much more than that. It's a, it's a, it, you know, it's the re, it, we use that word a lot so that people will not think they're being drawn into some religion. I think, you know, but but it is a spiritual experience. Mindfulness, and and you know, it's it's not really separate from loving kindness. There, there's something also, um, you, you talk a, a few places in the book about Thich Nhat Hanh, who's such an important Buddhist model and thinker for many people. And I mean, there's also an aspect of this, and I, I think this is still loving kindness or an outgrowth of it, which is not at all romantic, which is very challenging. Um, I mean, it's really, it's the Buddhist idea of compassion, where mm-hmm. uh, there's this poem you mentioned. I actually printed it out. I, I won't read it, but please call me by my true names. You talked about yeah. being in a session where someone read this aloud. And it's it's a it's Thich Nhat Hanh feeling as much compassion for the 12-year-old girl a refugee on a small boat who was raped by a sea pirate and having the same kind of compassion for the pirate whose heart is not yet capable of seeing and loving. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly an incredibly challenging concept. And it, it comes back to the first noble truth again, mm-hmm. the understanding that we are all struggling, that, that when, when someone rapes a 12-year-old girl, what's going on inside them is so awful, you know. They are filled with rage, confusion. Who knows what? I mean, I don't know, but I know it's not pleasant. I know it's a horror. So we that's where that's one of the way places that forgiveness comes from. And yeah, I mean Thich Nhat Hanh is if you know, perhaps a saint, you know, in, right. in certainly in the way <laughs> a that he, saint, yes. yeah, to be able to, I mean, that's something, you know, very few of us are going to be able to experience that on the on a deep level. But but I think we can also hear it and, and appreciate it at least. Um, you know, the stories of people. There's, a, I mean, there's probably more than one story, but I know of one story of a a woman whose son was murdered by another teenager, and the teenager was. You know, put in jail for years, and 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 she started, you know, started a correspondence with him, and eventually, when he came out of prison, she adopted him mm-hmm. and had him move in. The 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 man now who had murdered her own son, and that kind of, you know, well, I mean, that's beyond. That's more about forgiveness, of course. But mm-hmm. it, you know, it's really. Understanding, it's it's understanding. That, and, that, and I just, you know, it has echoes for me of what you said when we were talking about the the steps were, you know, taking moral inventory, and that somehow, as you saw, as you got more became more realistic and honest about your own failings, you could you could develop compassion towards the failings of others. That there was a direct correlation between self knowledge and compassion. Yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, again, it's the Bible. It's, you know, he who has not sinned, throw the first stone, mm-hmm. you know. And and that, I think, it's so important. I mean, this is where 
arrogance comes from, from where, you know, oh, we, you know, I could never do that. I would never do that. You're, you're so bad. But, I mean, who among us hasn't felt rage? Who among us hasn't felt hatred and hasn't, you know, even the, the thought of murder crossed our minds? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe not quite that, but certainly every human being, adult human being, has felt rage in their life. And to understand that, that that's, what con- that's what conditions murder, you know, mm-hmm. is rage. Yeah. And it's purely someone else's inability to manage that, their own, you know, additional failing. But, but you, if you've had rage, you know what murder is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not really different. You know, you you just haven't acted on it. I want to ask you, um, you write that at the end of the big book, um, it, it, you, that it says, it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. And that, again, coming back full circle, is the kind of language that sounds difficult in our culture. Mm. Yeah, it and it it's because because everything is impermanent, you know, and and our spiritual growth is impermanent. You have to, um, you know, if you don't, I, I mean, it has nothing to do with alcoholism, really. Um, you know, it, ha- it happens to. To lots of people, I mean, there's a story of the guy who introduced Ramdas to his guru in India, who wound up, you know, being fetid back in the states and becoming so, you know, falling back into just becoming an addict and a party animal. And you know, a few <laughs> years ago, he was selling used cars in Santa Cruz, and you know, re- woke up <laughs> and realized, whoa, I just threw away 25 years, or uh, what am I doing? Because he didn't continue to practice, he didn't continue to heal. Um, you know, there's something, the, uh, the wound that doesn't heal, you know, that, that, uh, remember that from some medieval text, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's, that's a human wound, you know, the first noble truth. Again, suffering, you know, you, you have to continue to practice the Buddha when he was, he was meditating when he died, you know, that was, why didn't he stop meditating after he became enlightened? You know, because he had to maintain that that practice. He had to he had to continue to do the work. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard. You um you don't really write about this in the book, but you mentioned that at some point you started to work on um, meditation for people with people who are homeless, and that that was the beginning of deciding to write the book. How, what kind of experience has that been for you? How has that uh, further informed your understanding of recovery or Buddhism, these spiritual principles? Well, first, the, what I learned was that uh, they weren't different from me. <laughs> they were mm-hmm. not separate from me. I was not, you know, in this different realm and you know, passing something down to them, um, and so it it really that's not even quite compassion. It was just a sense of connectedness, hmm. and and seeing, 
again, kind of impermanence. You talk to a homeless person and you realize, yeah, they had parents. They went to school. They lived in a house. And then, you know, things fell apart. And some people, maybe someday they'll have a job and a house again. And, you know, that's just the way things are right now. Um, You know, it's certainly uh, painful to to see that. And there are people who are so confused that they choose that. Uh, and and it, well, it's very interesting to see people who – they aren't homeless by accident. Hmm. They are homeless from almost a political stance. Hmm. Now, you run into these people in Berkeley quite a bit, you know, who – that's their way. I think you run into them in Berkeley but not in Minnesota <laughs> where, where the weather not. isn't allowed Not in the winter choice. anyway. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the but the idea that you know I'm dropping out and that's my political statement. I don't want to be on the grid at all. You know, okay, mm. wow. <laughs> you um you, you you love baseball and you you've drawn some analogies. Um, you you talk about you love about baseball how how. F- Failure is built into even the yeah. greatest records. Talk to me about that, that connection for you between baseball and spiritual enlightenment. Yeah, it's, it is a great practice. Um, you know, the, the book, The Spirituality of, of uh, Imperfection, mm. starts with that, with mm. that idea. And, sh- you know, if, if you succeed as a hitter in baseball one out of three times, or we could say if you fail two-thirds of the time, you're likely to get into the Hall of Fame as one of the best hitters ever. <laughs> so the, it's really a good way of connecting to how, how to live. That, that I mean, it, it, you know, in meditation, you, I mean, I'm sure I probably fail nine out of ten times in meditation. And how do you handle that? It's how you live with failure. Everybody fails. And, you know, however you define failure, you know, I define failure as not becoming a rock and roll star. You know, that's how <laughs> I defined it for a long time. Right. So, but how do you live with that? How do you hold that? And, you know, in meditation, people have a tremendous habit of defining themselves as failing in meditation. So one of my big projects is to get people over that, is to say, you know, it's, when you notice your mind has wandered, that's the time to notice what happens right then. Are you, do you say to yourself, oh, I messed up again. I don't know how to – I'm no good at meditating. Or do you say, oh, mind wandering, doing what it does, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, and then you come back and you laugh at yourself. I mean after a while, you either laugh or you cry, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think the, the skillful response is to be able to hold that experience as just part of, of life. Of Yeah, it's natural. That's the mind wanders. I mean, I used to really have these ideas about how I should be as a meditator and what a failure I was and, hmm. and that I wasn't mindful enough. And, you know, and, and after a while, I, I really had to drop that stuff because it was just another story and it was just another way of creating more suffering. And, you know, there's that karmic effect. Right, The only time you can do anything about your karma is right in this moment when you wake up and realize, oh, this is where I am. What do I want to do right now? If I choose to go into self, uh, you know, criticism, I'm creating more self-criticism and that's just going to build. 
if I can learn how to just come into that moment and go, oh, you know, oh, I struck out. You know, I mean, it's, that's what I love about, you know, <laughs> athletes. You know how athletes are. You think it, it's so annoying. They're so cliché. The, the clichés are, oh, well, you know, we're going to leave that game behind. You know, I'm not thinking about that, that last at bat. I'm not thinking about – and you think, oh, that's just what they say. But the, I think it's really true. I think that's how successful athletes function, by being able to let go in that way, let go of that last failure. And celebrate those moments when it does work. Sure. Know yeah. those. You you do uh, for you as a Buddhist in recovery. There there is this very intriguing echo between the real meaning of the name Buddha, the word Buddha, which is to be awake. And then Bill Wilson, several thousand years later, is talking about spiritual awakening. It is very interesting to to see you make yeah. that connection. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the easy ones to make. It's very clear, isn't it? Um, and, and you know, awake is a, is a metaphor. Mm. And um, so part of our work is to figure out what awake is mm. and, and how, how I bring that about. But, yeah, and, and it's another one of the things that people come to Step 12 and go, it says I've had a spiritual awakening. What? I don't feel like, you know, I'm not floating on a cloud. Hmm. What, what is this spiritual awakening? And, and I, I think it's useful. It's one of the things that I do in some of my class series is when we get to step 12 is say, okay, so what, what have the spiritual awakenings been of this process? You know, and there's a bunch. You know, there's the awakening of, of surrendering to your addiction. There's the awakening to turning it over. There's awakening to your inventory, you know, and awakening to your amends. So each of those can actually be as seen as an aspect of spiritual awakening. And the awakening, it comes at the end rather than at the beginning. Um, I think in our culture we think you have this breakthrough and then everything flows from there. But this is... This is an awakening at the end of an incredible amount of hard work and really not at the end because then the cycle starts all over again. Yeah, you know, there are different models about awakening. And, you know, Jack Kornfield has that book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, and which is sort of the model that you're talking about, you know, where you have this kind of breakthrough experience and then you kind of try to integrate that Mm -hmm. into your your regular life. And uh, people have that. Uh, (laughs) I haven't, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> you don't do you the know, laundry yet. I, no, I. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I do the laundry. I, I, I don't know about the ecstasy <laughs> part. Okay. Um, I mean, I didn't. I didn't have a breakthrough experience. Is what I'm saying. And I've, I have known people who've had these moments before they even started spiritual practice, where they had some kind of enlightenment experience or satori or whatever you call it. And. Um, you know, I I definitely am more subscribed to the the gradual awakening. You know, the idea of of um, I mean, that's what what works for worked for me. And 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 ultimately, the the problem with having the big breakthrough moment is that it actually doesn't solve anything. Mm. Um, you know, we were uh, I was teaching this weekend and saying that you know right now as I'm teaching. I'm teaching you about things that I'm not experiencing right now. Mm. I've had the experience of them. You know, I've had these experience of, experiences of deep emptiness or stillness or tremendous sense of connectedness or ecstasy. Uh, but right now, 
I'm just sharing about them. And having had that experience, I can refer back to it. And that's the value of it, actually. The, you know, what I thought when I got involved in spiritual practice was I'm going to have this enlightenment experience, and that's just going to carry me. I'm going to float on that for the rest of my life. Everything's going to be solved for me. Right. But, but it really, it's just a reference point. And if you forget that reference point, then you can just fall back to, uh, you know, back into the same habits just as easily. Let me just, we've got to finish, unfortunately. But let me just mm-hmm. ask you this, I think, by way of ending what do you understand about Buddhism that you that you might not have understood or at least so deeply or richly without the 12 steps? And what do you understand about the 12 steps that you think you see more clearly um, because of your Buddhist practice? Hmm. It's hard to condense that, I know. Yeah. I what I comes can try to mind? To, yeah, what yeah. comes up? Um. What do I understand about Buddhism from... You know, you have this line that's really great. And, you know, you say in the book, I need the wisdom of the Buddha to absorb the realities and mysteries of life. And I need the voices of a thousand alcoholics and addicts to keep me on track Mm. today. Maybe if you'd rather just reflect on that. I. Yeah. Well, certainly what I saw through my 12-step work was that isolated... Uh, intensive meditation practice was not going to fix my life. And so it was, it's kind of a reality check in that way. And, um, and I've seen people, you know, I had a friend a couple of years ago say, oh, well, you know, I don't have a job. I'm going to go on a retreat because then I'll get a job. And I was like, well, <laughs> unless you're planning on getting a job as a meditator, it's probably not going to mm-hmm. get you a job. And, and I had that delusion. Um, so, so the 12-step programs helped me to get my feet on the ground and see that, that the, what they call in Buddhism, sila, the ethics, is the foundation. The moral morality is the foundation of spiritual growth. And I, and I did not see that when I hmm. ran, met B- Buddhism. For the, tw- the 12 steps, what, what I see is that the Buddhist practices... Buddhist practices especially give me access to the spiritual experience, the direct conscious contact that we talk about. It's not theoretical anymore. It's not just saying a prayer um, or going to a meeting. It's really having that authentic sense of touching something beyond yourself, something Mm. um, powerful and meaningful. So... In a sense, for you, Buddhism really opens a window to the, let's say, let's say the spirit of the higher power idea. Yes. You're saying for you even more powerfully than if you, if you had a transcendent idea of God. I think I hear you saying that. Um, a, a transcendent idea of God? A tra- transcendent sense <laughs> of God. I mean, you're saying there's a transcendence for you, which doesn't need to have a higher power as something outside yourself. I don't know. I'm... I, yeah. Tell, correct me. I mean, put it in your own. No. Way. I, I, yeah. I, I. I don't. What's. What's outside, inside. You know. That's. Those are um, fictions mm. from a Buddhist viewpoint. I. And ultimately, from my. You know, my experience, they are. They are fictions, and. Um, so yeah, there. There's not um, a connection with something 
else. Mm-hmm. It's the connection with what is. And, uh, you know, self and other dissolve, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. In, in, that, in that experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, Buddha, the people who asked the Buddha about these things, and he was just like, you know, that's not that important. Uh, he, it's, he's more interested in just, just kind of just do it, you know, or from the Nike school of spiritual <laughs> practice, you know. Um, you know, the, the, you don't really need, the answers don't, you know, the ideas don't uh, solve anything for you. What, what solves you is, solves things is the experience itself. And when you've had the experience, then the ideas are just attempts to describe something that's really indescribable. Hmm. Which is, of course, the whole problem with God, with people trying to talk about God, right? <laughs> right? They're always trying to describe the indescribable. And then someone later on thinks that they were actually describing the, re- the reality. And so then they attach to that idea. And then you have, you know, this Sistine Chapel. You know, <laughs> and, oh, that's, that's God. That's, okay. you know, God the Father. Is there anything I haven't asked you about or something that feels really important that you would want to say that you would want to put out there? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, you know, uh, you're great. You know. <laughs> well, thank you. This is... You um, know, I, I really enjoy talking to you. I, I've enjoyed listening to you and, and I've been looking forward to talking to you. Oh, good. I, you're, it's really really wonderful. Well, I've really enjoyed it. I've really loved reading you, and I hope we'll be on Berkeley one of these days, but there is podcasting now, thank God. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's the godless Bay Area, that's my theory. <laughs> no, you know? I don't uh, buy that. I, I think it would be a perfect place for us to be on the air. We'll get it, there one It day. would be, it yeah. would be. I'll, I'll do what I can. Do I what you can. Connections. All yes. right, we will let you know what's happening with this. I know, um, yeah. I think you've been talking to Colleen, or, yeah. and so, okay, so yeah. thank you so much for taking all this time with me. Yeah, what I did want to mention mm-hmm. off air too mm-hmm. is, um, well, I know you usually put up different stuff on the site if, right. when, if you you know if you do this, um, and the thing that I've gotten involved with is just the Buddhist Recovery Network oh. is something that's um, pretty exciting new. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. And so we will. The, our website is going to go live May first, so that'll be something we can connect to. Yeah, no, that would um, be the kind of thing we would hook into and direct yeah. people to and all that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that we'll we'll that we'll we would ask you that kind of question too. We'll we'll um, come back, circle back to that closer okay. to the time. Okay. And and uh, you know, you know, I'm writing a new book. No. No. Um, I, well, I know. I guess you. What are you writing about? It's God, Buddha, and the path of recovery. Mm. So wow. it's really, yeah, that's, that's the f- whole focus is higher power. So uh, I really want you to have me on when the book comes <laughs> out so, so I can sell lots of books. Okay. When is the book and, coming out? Do you know? Uh, like it's, hopefully fall of 09. So yeah. it's, it's plenty of time. Lots it won't time. be too many, too many Kevin Griffin shows. <laughs> okay. Know, but, uh, all right. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Great to Thanks meet you, so to speak. Christy, okay. You Bye-bye. too.